Good morning and welcome to Second Captain Sunday. Owen McDevitt here with Murph and Ken. Morning, Murph and Ken. Hi, hey, Honor. Good morning, Owen. I'm pretty good. We do like to bring you good, positive vibes every Sunday morning. We've been on the air for two weeks now. This is our third episode. And in that space of time, uh, nothing much has happened, really, other than, you know, the world being plunged deeper and deeper into one of the most cataclysmic crises in the history of human existence and all that. <laughs> the latest chapter, Ken, was the Republican Convention. I saw mm. you glued to it all week. Yeah, I've been a bit bleary-eyed all week because I've been up till three or four in the morning watching this um, insane thing that was happening in uh, in Cleveland, you know, um, culminating in the speech by Donald Trump, the so-called blue-collar billionaire. Uh, so he shouted and screamed with this face of puce into the camera for 75 minutes uh, about how America and the world are teetering on the brink of chaos and anarchy, and he's the only one who can save uh, save us. Yeah. And afterwards, everyone commented on his more moderate tone. <laughs> this, this was the pivot. Everyone was like, he's, he's moving back towards the center. Presidential. Thought, what is happening here? You know, the, the Democratic Convention is this week, you know, the sort of equivalent event. And they've got some good speakers. I mean, they'll have the two, the Obamas, uh, Bill Clinton, you know, obviously Hillary Clinton, Chelsea Clinton. But I don't know if I'm going to be staying up to watch this one. Yeah. I mean, sanity is just not as interesting to watch as insanity. And this is the thing that's kind of... It makes me wonder about this. I mean, how many Donald Trump videos have you watched in the last three months? Oh. Hundreds? Yeah, I would probably say hundreds, yeah. How many Hillary Clinton videos have you watched? A few. I don't think I've watched any. This is the problem. Yeah. I mean, it's clear, it's clear sort of how the rest, when the rest of the world looks at this, it's obvious what the outcome should be. Yeah. But the kind of energy is all on one side. It reminds me a little bit of the Brexit situation, you know, where the people who wanted it were really excited about it. And everyone who didn't want it was like, well, of course. I mean, it's such a self-evidently silly idea. Yeah, it but could it possibly happen, yeah. It wasn't as though anyone was getting really excited. It's hard to exercise yourself when you're just doing the right thing. Yeah. You know, that, that doesn't, it doesn't strike you as the most exciting thing to do in the world. So I just wonder if, if, you know, the people who are supporting him just wanted that bit more, that bit more excited. I mean, and if maybe there's a little bit in everyone that kind of wants to be around for the end of the world... I mean, if there wasn't, if that wasn't a sort of attractive idea on some level, why would it keep popping up again and again? You know, why are people always... You're going to get the one go around on this, you know, let's make it memorable. Might as well be there when it happens. All right, if you're tuning in to Second Captain Sunday for the first time, our plan is to give you entertaining and enlightening interviews with people from all walks of life, only to subject our guests each week to a rigorous and potentially humiliating assessment of their sporting ability. It's only fair as we seek to find out just who is Ireland's greatest ever non-sports person, sports person. The man putting himself forward this week is only one of the world's leading film directors. We've been dying to meet this guy for ages. Oscar-nominated director of Room, Lenny Abrahamson, is popping into us. Murph, what are the current standings? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Well, on the standard has been, quite frankly, frighteningly high thus far. Uh, Gabby Logan is our current leader with idiot points, but David O'Darty is snapping at her heels, just three points adrift in uh, second place. There have been strong performances across the board in the three categories of all-time personal sports highlight, overall sporting ability and current sports knowledge. I award marks out of 100 in all three categories, and just seven to nine minutes later, via the magic of math... I will have calculated your percentage mark. Gabby was in the Commonwealth Games. David once tackled Dennis Hickey. But can Ireland's greatest living film director Oscar nominee Lenny Abramson finally really achieve something worthwhile in his life? And take top spot this morning? Only time will tell, On 88 points to beat. 
88 points 88 to points out of 100 You may not be aware of this But Lenny's next project Centres around one of the most Tragic episodes in the history Of professional boxing He's going to fill us in On all of that In a few minutes time And I don't want to sit here Telling Lenny Abramson How to do his don't. job or anything You would never do that In my book though The key to directing A great sports movie Is to cast actual Real life sports people In leading roles Just think Pele In Escape to Victory So the Allies are still behind Three hey, goals to fall I want to play you can't play like that. I feel good. I feel better. I must play. Ref, he's coming back on. You see, completely stole the scene from yeah. Michael Caine there, Pele. Caine yeah, was just swimming there. around, uh, totally out of his depth. Murph, as you remember, maybe explain the genius premise of Escape to Victory. Well, Escape to Victory, directed by Ireland's own John Huston, I should say, is one of the truly great, terrible movies of <laughs> all time. As uh, Michael Caine leads a crack team of World War II POWs that includes, you know, obviously Sly Stallone, Pele, John Wark and Ozzy Ardiles all in the one uh, room together against a German outfit. The game is an elaborate cover for an escape attempt to the Parisian sewer system. But will our heroes make it out alive? And more importantly, can they hold on for a credible for-all draw? Wasn't there an Irish guy? Uh, is there not an Irish guy involved yes, in the uh, Allied team at some stage? Yeah, it comes up at the end of the credits. Yeah. It's a guy called um, Kevin O'Callaghan, uh, Ireland International, right at the end of the credits. Right, OK. Yeah, it's, it's, That's uh, all the information. But listen, if you have any more info on Kevin O'Callaghan, do text us in. The Irish star of Escape to Victory, 51551. You can tweet at Second Captains or email secondcaptains at rte.ie. Lenny Abramson is on the way. This is Second Captain Sunday. A Heyday by Mick Christopher there, a song featured in maybe the greatest alcohol ad of all time, Murph. What's that? No, with <laughs> no, no, not what's up. No, no, the swimming oh, okay. ad, uh, swimming the Atlantic, Guinness, uh, well, featuring. Do you remember the actor? Oh, that's uh, Fassbender. It's Michael, Michael Fassbender, Fassbender, one of the great yeah, yeah. actors who's worked with our guest this morning on Second Captain Sunday. He was already one of our favourite directors with incredible movies like Adam and Paul and Frank, to his credit. We didn't need to see him pick up, you know, Oscar nominations to prove that he was one of the best <laughs> in the world. But no harm, all the same, being nominated for Room earlier this year. Lenny, Lenny Abramson, thanks for popping in. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's great to see. It hasn't all been praise for Room, though. There have been critics. Well, one critic. This is a terrible way to start on. Oh, they can't believe this. <laughs> <laughs> a critic called Matt left this review on Amazon. He gave it one star, gave Room one star. And, and, and his review was, such a stupid premise for a movie. Why didn't they just leave the room? <laughs> what hole? How would you Damn respond it. to, uh, to uh, Matt's critique there? Just Matt, I can't believe nobody else picked that up. <laughs> that, was, oh, that was staring us in the yeah, face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love, I mean, some of the, the, the general commentary, I mean, it actually was, was incredibly good, but you do get these, if you make the mistake of sort of, looking at Twitter and, and looking at the replies and going too far down. Do you look? Do you go that far? Uh, occasionally, just because it's almost impossible not to. It's yeah. like if somebody's talking about you in a restaurant or commenting on you or how do you not not look around? You know, it's, I think it's... It, it, but actually, recently, I've much less and don't read. With Room particularly, you couldn't read all the reviews because it was such a, a phenomenon at a certain point. Now, that was quite liberating. I just stopped. Yeah, there was engaging. so much praise as well. I'm wondering how you actually feel you dealt with that praise coming at you from all angles I, I'm not you know I, I, I think I'm blessed with a kind of naturally miserable <laughs> outlook you know <laughs> and it's and, I, and lots of praise just stops me from descending into absolute misery you know but it doesn't it doesn't have the effect of thro- putting me up into the stratosphere or you know yeah. so I, 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 I think what was difficult for me was the amount of publicity stuff that we had to do so it was nearly six months of being on the road with it and doing interviews all the time and talk it's not healthy to talk about yourself that much in fact no matter how you know you can believe something completely but if you say it often enough it starts to sound fake and that's the way I felt by the end of the process uh, would you would you say that that attitude is a is a uniquely Irish kind of attitude um it I think there's definitely a wariness 
in in Ireland about being too pleased with yourself. Nobody nobody likes that. Whereas in America, you're expected to kind of wave your own flag in a very definite way. That's that's okay. But but it is. I've noticed it. I don't know. I think maybe it is, and maybe maybe, and also it's just a kind of personal, you know, personal uh, cross. <laughs> you know? Well, certainly in. I mean, we've interviewed a lot of sports people over the years, and for sports people, the worst sin imaginable doesn't seem to be doping. It doesn't seem to be cheating. It, certainly in Ireland, it seems to be yeah, just getting a bit too big for your boots. Yeah, that's right. Like, yeah, that's it. Just just sort of getting a bit carried away, losing the run of yourself. Why is, uh, why is it? Why can't we just accept that it's okay for people to talk themselves up or, or at least be comfortable with how... It's not even that. It's actually just uh, admitting that you're good at something more so even than yeah. having yeah. to talk yourself well, up. Well, there's the notion here of being sound and, and soundness usually means just ordinary doesn't fancy themselves too much and I mean I, I think if you're going to go one way or the other especially you know listening to you guys talking about the Republican convention mm. where Trump is certainly not doesn't suffer from the Irish <laughs> fear of self-promotion um, I prefer our approach you know I think it's generally healthier okay it does keep things in yeah keep, keep yeah. things in, in check or in balance that might or- otherwise be somewhat dangerous in the case of Trump indeed and 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 you can I've seen you do see people and certainly I think that the thing about being a director rather than being an actor is that you are you don't have to deal with the absolute craziness of of celebrity which which I can you know I've seen and and it's very hard for people to deal with that I don't think we're you know there's like I always think people are sort of like gases they expand to fill the spaces that they're given Mm. and uh, when everybody around you is giving you that kind of level of adulation and when you're allowed be and say whatever you want people go a bit crazy so I don't think that happens so much to directors because we're kind of a bit more invisible. And what sort of impact has the success of Room had on what you're doing next? On, on the avenues opened up to you? It's it's kind of unfolding as you know as 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 I go. But pretty soon after it, it started to bubble up, and and then and then certainly around the time of all the award stuff, I, you do become aware of the fact that doors are open, and and certainly getting films financed difficult films or films which are tricky or expensive and don't fit the the kind of the cookie cutter um uh, you know shape that 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 people understand in the in the film world getting those films made suddenly you realize is possible and actors probably the main the main power a director has is their capacity to attract actors that's the bit that they bring that the studios or whoever is financing is kind of most aware of and that has changed so so yeah I do I feel that the world is a bit different, but not in myself. I don't feel yeah. that different. I saw the, the Matt Damon did one of those "Ask Me Anything" um, interviews a couple of days ago, where he he made that point about you know what, when he's picking a movie, he's obviously a, a pretty big star at yeah. this stage. But he said the script is a secondary consideration for him. He just really is interested to see who the director is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it's interesting that people would make that decision based on an award nomination, though. Yeah, I mean, I think you would hope. That the the award nomination is the bit that makes them look around and and then they look at other work that you've done or, and I think to be fair to the actors, it's it's just that visibility means that they engage with the work and uh, the the award nomination effect is definitely more pronounced in the kind of world of financing. You know, that's because it's that's horse racing. I mean, uh, really, what goes on in a lot of the time is that people are looking to say, okay, well, that guy won the the Oaks. So I'll put a few quid on, on him, and and 
and and they're sort of uh, because it's such a, filmmaking is such a messy uncertain business and and the results are really hard to predict and projects which look like they should be great don't so all you can do is kind of f- from their point of view is kind of put your cash down on the on the people who've done it once before mm-hmm. and I hope that they might do it again um and and you know so there's a whole mishmash of of reasons why why you become a but but like I always used to hear about lists you know oh such and such a director is on every list and and now that I am sort of for for whatever reason now on those lists I can recognize what that means because every or you know a, a large proportion of the really good scripts that are out there will come across your desk yeah. Because you've, and, and it's, it, you know, I think the thing is not, and going back to what we were talking about earlier, is not to get carried away by that and think that that makes you amazing. Yeah. Because it's just, a, it's an industry and it works a certain way and you're there for a while and maybe you won't be for that long. Well, that, the question then arises, uh, you're saying stuff comes across your desk now. I mean, say for instance, you know, Matt Damon's saying, I'm interested in who the director is. How does a director make up his mind? I mean, how, how, when you're looking at these things, how do you know what to pick? Uh, for me, it's really a, just a very definite kind of gut feeling. And I... Um, I know. Re- I tend to know very quickly when I'm reading something, whether it's whether whether it's for me or not. By like page three, or sometimes, sometimes. But well, you know, it's not for you. You can know it's <laughs> not for you by page three, just because the writing and just that you can see. Sometimes, you know, it's a bit like a kind of uh, if if the patterns are so visible that quickly, you know, you can sort of project exactly the the beats of the story, and you know, you've seen it before. Um, mostly the things that I'm doing are things that I'm developing already with Ed Guiney, the producer that I've worked with for years and years. So a lot of it is in-house, but I do read from outside. And once in a while, something like a book or a script will come and I just find it kind of gets under my skin and I find myself thinking about it a few days later and I can't, and, and I start to see images and then I feel like, oh, maybe, and I don't, and I, and I usually want to pass because I have things that I'm doing and I'm busy and I, and I want to concentrate on my own projects. So it's the feeling like, oh, damn it, I, I, I can't let, I can't quite let this one go. It doesn't, it's not I'd easy hate, I'd to, hate to. I'd hate to watch this being directed by someone exactly, else. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. So that was, that was, you know, reading room was like that and, and and Frank actually came as a script uh, in a very di- it was quite a different form when I read it and I thought oh come on this is ridiculous guy in a fake head and oh, it's just a disaster <laughs> it's going to be I can see so many ways in which this film will be terrible um, but I just kept thinking about it and I, and I liked Frank Sidebottom and this strange kind of tonal comedic tragic comic thing that I personally like a lot kind of inhabited me and then I just didn't want to let it go well one of the stories that's grabbing you now and I hinted at this before we uh, we played uh, the song there is that of Emil Griffith who's yeah. a five time world uh, boxing champion from the 19 late 50s right, yeah. fighting right through the late 70s can you explain a little bit about what this story is yeah so so I read Don McRae Don McRae I know you guys know mm. very well I read his book about Griffith called The Man's World and it just it unfolds in such a kind of an extraordinary way uh, you know I always say I'm not I tend not to be very interested in drama as a director because life doesn't contain all that much drama life is is it, it mostly you know the bits in between the exciting bits or and yet films tend to just get rid of all that and go for those sort of those big moments the moments where a close-up is demanded <laughs> or a moment where the character knows that something amazing is happening whereas most of us just kind of blunder through our days and so I've tended to avoid it, but but occasionally you you read a story where you go, my God, that is, 
that is so much stranger than fiction and that is so extraordinary and that's griffith he, he was a so the potted version is he was a uh, a kid from the american virgin islands a black kid very poor grew up um uh, there and then went to the states late fifties. Wanted to work in fashion, so he 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 wanted to design ladies' hats. Um, he worked in sort of Seventh Avenue garment district, which is an amazing period in that and place in you know New York. Um, and he was gay and he was very kind of uh, involved in the underground gay scene as a young guy. And after a certain period of time, the boss, who was this Jewish boxing-obsessed um, guy, who was the owner of the factory, said, do you ever think about boxing? And he said, yeah, not really. And three years later, he was world champion um, and and was for several years and defended his title several times. But he lived this double life between um, Times Square, underground gay scene, and, and, uh, and, his, and his continuing interest mm-hmm. in ladies' millinery, on the one hand, and boxing on the other and you know his story is becomes very very powerful as it goes on but it's just such an amazing yeah world. i mean the tragedy at the center of it surrounds the death of an opponent in the ring that's right benny benny parrot who had taunted him over his sexuality in advance of the fight that's right which, which i guess is the crux of it in a lot yeah, of yeah i mean what's interesting about griffith is that he was at least and as i dig into it there are you know nobody's life is ever clear and i don't ever feel good if i'm working on a character or especially if it's a real person but in fact any character I never feel good if I feel I understand them because that usually means there's a kind of reduction going on and so with with Griffith it's hard to know but what he seems to have been was somebody who was quite comfortable with his sexuality at that point um, but when he was a younger man and then he gets into this kind of famous um, series of fights with Benny Perret this Cuban boxer very macho very kind of um uh, more traditionally what you would imagine a boxer to be. And uh, when Griffith beat Perrette the first time, Perrette was so kind of incensed that that he started to exploit the rumours that had always gone around about Griffith. But in those days, there was a kind of agreement that you don't talk about it. So it was never discussed in the press. It was He was able to... They would make to write funny articles about what a strange thing to be interested in ladies' fashion. But nothing, you know... Well, this so was the time when Liberace him, was, yeah, was you yeah. know, sued for being... Uh, for somebody saying that he was gay yeah. and was successful. Mm. Um, but so Griffith, so Perrette started to taunt Griffith, in, I suppose in an effort to get an advantage in this famous weigh-in where he sort of, you know, called him in Spanish, the Spanish word for faggot. And, and the press then started to feel like they could talk about it because it was so public that it was like a, an invitation to the sort of more more salacious parts of the press to kind of get in there. And then the third fight, um, there's a very extraordinary ending to the fight where Griffith had Perrette on the ropes and and Griffith was a very technical fighter he wasn't a particularly aggressive fighter but in this I think he felt so both betrayed and threatened by Perrette because it was a dangerous thing in those days you know you could be it was illegal to be to, you know to, to be a, uh, to practice homosexuality it's kind of incredible to think about it now but um, so so there was this series of flurry at the end of the fight where where Griffith really really took him you know fought him hard on the ropes and the ref should have stepped in and he didn't and Perrette went into a coma and died a little while later and so Griffith was racked with a terrible guilt um which I think many fighters experience who've, who've gone through that 
but in his case it was compounded by the idea that that's something that in a sense his sexuality had been responsible for that had he not been gay this wouldn't have happened we've got some uh, pretty haunting audio here from the interview this is the actual interview on TV in the ring after the oh, fight yeah, and it was the first time ever apparently according to Donald McRae's book in television history that a slow motion replay had been used so uh, he's uh, well you, you'll hear, hear what it says the first voice you're going to hear is the presenter Don Dunphy uh, Benny, uh, rather, Emil, I want you to take a look at our screen here, and we're going to replay the knockout in uh, slow motion videotape, and I'd like you to just sort of describe what happened, if you can remember. It was very exciting. It'll go there in just a moment now. Here it's coming now. Yeah, there it is. One punch and hurt That's it. That's it. That's over now. He's hurt now, see? That's there. I heard him um, right there, and then I was... That's beautiful camera work, isn't it? Yeah, or anything like that. And that's just about it, Amo. I keep on punching. I tried to get it in the game, but the referee pulled me back. It was he's a good fighter for He's a good game fighter. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, watching the moment where being forced to watch in slow motion, the moment where and I think he described later that he could see and everyone could see when the slow motion was played, that something bad had happened to Beretta at that moment. It's a, the, the devotion to technology there as well. It's, we've got this slow motion replay. It's a new yeah. kind of, we've, we've got to go through <laughs> yeah, it, even it. though there's seriously something amiss here. Yeah, and there's a guy lying on the canvas who hasn't woken up right behind them. I mean, it's amazing. You mentioned the effect that it has on, on Benny's life. And I guess it touches off so many different uh, so many different angles. But the killer quote in the front of the book is, I kill a man and most people forgive me. However, I love a man. And many say, this makes me an evil person. Yeah, extraordinary. I mean, and 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 so moving. And, and you know, Griffith tried to, he went through a period of trying to be straight afterwards, thinking that he had to kind of somehow shake off his... This, this this dangerous sexuality which had led to this terrible thing. And for me, that's so moving. Somebody kind of... I, I, for some reason, I always am drawn in stories to, to, to people whose self... whose sense of themselves, you know, whatever story you tell about yourself, who you are, who you think you are, when that gets radically interrupted. Mm-hmm. And, and Griffith, that's where he, in a way, had to take on the view of himself that society had after the killing of, or the death of Perrette. And uh, and then watching him in his life as he sort of came to terms, never really fully publicly, but more or less to the extent that he felt he could with, with who he was publicly. And then he was involved in Stonewall. He did live out the rest of his life as an older man with, with a, a male partner. He did, you know, that's a quote that kind of acknowledges mm-hmm. who he is. And, and it's such an incredible story because it's about, it's about sexuality. It's about masculinity. It's about it's about sport. It's it's and but ultimately, and the thing that I'm always interested in, it's just about that particular person. Do you see it, Lenny, as a boxing movie? Well, would you take inspiration from Raging Bull and the other? I great think Raging Bull is good. I mean, I think it'd be a very different film, but I think Raging Bull is a good example of a sports movie because it's not ultimately about the sport any more than it's about. It's you always. I mean, it's always. Good work is always about going from sort of surface to depth. Mm. And a sports movie is good if the sport becomes part of the leverage or the, you know, the crowbar which opens up that character. And so Lamada's decline in, in Raging Bull is about a whole lot of other things, but it's so vividly expressed through the sport. Similarly with, with, with Griffith, you know, um, how do you, how could you possibly better dramatize this kind of identity conflict than have it focused on these violent encounters publicly presented 
which themselves become the kind of focal point of debate about who his identity is. You know, it's an amazing way in which you can examine somebody like that and, and the times that he lived in. Yeah. And, you know, and, and various and other, you know, aspects. I think if, if it's good, it will be about, for other people, it will resonate with other aspects of their life, not necessarily the sexuality, but ways in which they kind of feel there is a private aspect which can't be ever fully presented i'm excited anyway murph <laughs> you look pretty excited there but, but also uh, it's exciting to think about shooting boxing because it's such yeah a, boxing, yeah they're all all the best sports movies are boxing yeah. movies i mean there's a famous quote i can't remember he said some, some american sports writer said something like uh, the smaller the ball the better the writing yeah. i can't remember who it was but i always thought that what he really meant there was uh, i mean small the smaller the ball the more likely it is it's an individual sport yes uh, and and i just find individual sports maybe are easier to cover in a way. I mean, uh, you know, we were talking about Irish sports. People not really want to say much. They, most of them play team sports, though. Nobody wants to appear like a big head in a team. Yeah, I mean, Conor yeah. McGregor does exist. Con- I suppose. Yes. That, that's true. You're right. Yeah, that's, so, that's true. And actually, funny thing about, about shooting team sports as well is that they tend to get filmed really badly yeah. because directors are inclined to want to control the drama. And like we talked about Escape to Victory, where the reason why Escape to Vic- the soccer in Escape to Victory is so crap is that the camera knows in advance where the ball's going to go, which is all <laughs> right, wrong. Yeah. You know, so they cut to Bobby Moore as the ball arrives perfectly at his feet. He looks up. You, know, you can see the storyboard. He sees Pele on the wing. He, he kind of gives him a nod. He chips it over and Pele takes it. Now, if, if you know anything about soccer, you know that it's the, it's the extraordinary moments of clarity out of the chaos that are the beautiful thing. And so I think the only way to shoot team sports is to play them and follow it. Don't tell the camera people where the ball's going to go. And that's going to be a better, better sequence. Well, I know you used the word crap. I'm sure you meant brilliant. I mean, there's a lot of love sorry. coming in here. I do love it. Yeah. I mean, in its kitsch way. There's a lot of love coming in for... It's a truly great, terrible movie. Yes, Escape we've the described it. Yeah. And some info on Kevin O'Callaghan, the Irish star we're going to describe. Okay, him as go on. Declan Jordan says Kevin O'Callaghan Visage played as a goalkeeper, even though he was a winger. And his arm was broken to get sliced alone into the team. Lads, Michael Caine broke Kevin's arm. Kevin had only one line in the film. And John says he was a goalkeeper and they needed to injure him to allow Sly to join the team. I, I wow. don't, don't ask why. Sly, oh, sorry. Ah, this is a lot of information from John. Sly was the man with the escape plan. Yeah. So they had to yeah, get yeah. him involved. He was the he, okay. a Canadian soldier who was uh, an escape expert. I can't believe I'm explaining this to you. And come on, this is this is obvious stuff here. Okay, I'm sure all the Emil Griffith stuff is going to stand you in good stead, Lenny, in your attempts to become Ireland's greatest ever non-sports person, sports oh, person. You God. get your text oh, in. This is, this is where it gets, goes horribly wrong. You sound confident. Get your text in 51551. Tweet us at Second Captains. Up next, we delve into this sporting life of Lenny Abramson. Second captain, first captain, whatever. If the camp doctor verifies this broken arm, you may have the American. Thank you. Well, Tony. Try and make it a clean break, will you? I'll try. I won't even get to see the game, will I? (laughs) That's it! That's Kevin O'Callaghan's line in Escape to Victory. Try and make it a clean break of... Forgive me, Ken, but he doesn't sound like the most Irish of Irish internationals. Oh, oh come on. Just, just, yeah. This is, this is the Kevin O'Connor. I mean, there's Irish people from all over the world. True. Uh, he, I don't know if you ever saw his... He played in, in a 3 old draw between Ireland and Spain. One of the most exciting games ever played in Dublin. Uh, Ireland 3-1 down, roar back to 3 all. We're talking early 80s here, around the... Uh, 82, time, November yeah. 82, Kevin O'Callaghan's uh, river dancing feet. A left winger playing on the right. Uh, ahead of his time 
uh, goes past two men and crosses Ricardo Caresma style to Frank Stapleton to equalise the back post. An incredible moment, and, and if you had seen it, you would not be doubting, not be sitting there doubting that man's Irishness. Well, no, I think we've got to talk to this guy at this stage. We'll try to track him down by the end of the show and see what we can do. Owen Murphy and Ken here on Second Captain Sunday. You can drop us a text on 51551. Lenny Abramson is in studio this morning, and we're now going to talk with relish about your own sporting pedigree, Lenny. Yes. I've I, I got to start <laughs> well, by saying... People our, are laughing all over the city, I can tell you. Our <laughs> first guest, Gabby Logan, competed in the Commonwealth Games in yeah. gymnastics. David O'Doherty once tackled future Irish rugby legend Dennis Hickey into touch. Your own sporting highlight, I believe, is a little more modest? Yeah, it's very modest, really. Um, now now slightly embarrassing when you mentioned the other <laughs> two. Because uh, I, I was chatting to, to, to Mark out there earlier about what it might be. And I, the only time I ever remember feeling like a sports person <laughs> was actually in a bar in San Francisco. I went to college there. I went to college in, in California for a while when I was in my early 20s. And having been always the guy who was picked last, not quite. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm beefing this up for dramatic purposes. <laughs> picked like third last, you know. Quite a good catcher of things. Good wicket keeper. Good goalie, but too small, you know. Um, and uh, but I used to like playing a bit of pool. But I was pretty average to bad. But but I used to in California. I used to go up to San Francisco. Um, I was in Palo Alto, which is a very boring place, and I used to go up to San Francisco and wander around before I knew anybody. And I remember going into this bar, which was full of what would now, we would now think of hipsters, and we right. didn't quite know who they were then, but it was very cool. Lots of people way too good looking for me to ever talk to, <laughs> you know. But for whatever reason, I put my money down on the pool table, and there were some, there were a lot of serious sort of pool school going on there. And I kept it for about, I think it was eight to ten games and I every single shot I hit went in every double I tried went in and I started doing that thing that people do which is walking with a kind of nonchalant kind of like put something really big in and then sort of scratch your nose and look away like it's really staring at your reporter as you pot the black yeah exactly no it was uh, so I at least in my head it was a color of money triumph whereas to to the to the guys there it was just some little sort of you know, white, boring little kid who'd come in and just took the table for a while. But that was my, that was, and I actually had the sense to do a kind of fake look at the watch and leave before <laughs> I, I left on beaten. I left oh, on Rocky Marciano's. Yeah, I left on beaten, uh, you know. So that was my, that's my that's my sporting achievement. Who knows? You could still be there. I mean, we don't know. I mean, <laughs> they maybe could say they could talk about that. White it's like the bit in Bad Biopics where you know, and it's the sort of Ray Charles movie where somebody says, "Hey, that little blind kid can sure play the piano." You know, that kind of bit. <laughs> so I hoped that I was that guy for a while. It sounds like you've always had an interest, though. You were obviously big into movies, and you were strong academically. You found yeah. some time for sport. I I loved sport. I mean, uh, you know, I'm fascinated by sport, and and the big those sort of moments in your particularly for me like late 70s when I was kind of becoming like a like aware of the world um yeah those Olympic Games and World Cups they were and the boxing matches particularly and times you could see Ali and you thought I cannot believe that I'm participating in a global event we're so used to it now Mm. the global events then were sport right or you know too late for the moon landing although my friend Steve Rannix who writes all the music was three and remembers does or claims to remember that you know watching the moon landing I was I was like two or one and a half or something so too early but the other stuff was all that it was that sense that really big things were happening and you were watching and they mattered And, and the beauty of it and it's funny because I was bad at soccer but I loved it I think I kind of understood something about what it is to be good because I, I I remember you know receiving the ball and thinking to myself as I dribbled as I ran towards midfield hmm here comes a defender will I try and will I knock it by him and try and run or will I pass it now 
if you ever have that thought, you've already lost the ball. Yeah. And, and the, 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 what really good sports people have, and it crosses over into loads of other areas of life of where people are, get, are great at things, is that the decision is the doing and the doing is the decision. It's like a flow state where they're in the moment. And, and, and that's the joy of it. It's the feeling of, and I get it, I got it in other areas, you know, where I could kind of see things clearly, academically, certainly. And I did a lot, philosophy was my thing. And if I was explaining it to somebody who wasn't good at it, you'd be, you could see them kind of trying to draw connections and lines consciously. Whereas if you're seeing the pattern, then it's already happening. And so I became very fascinated with sport in that way, that it's like this kind of, this, this template of what excellence is like you know compared to how we tend to think of it do you see parallels with acting acting hugely more so than directing directing is this weird combination of there's aspects of that but it's also managerial and crazily sort of messy but really good actors it's so fascinating if you watch a bad actor or somebody who doesn't act having to act they 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 actually lose the ability even just to like pick up a cup to be normal yeah. to to be normal to walk it's like you can see them sort of going oh my god i'm walking now I, what do i do <laughs> so a good actor not only obviously the ordinary action is totally flawless but but the comp complex dramatic situation plays in that same immediate unmediated way you know they don't they're not thinking okay how am i going to react to that they are in the moment even though it's an artificial situation. And soccer's the same, you know? Yeah. Where, where do you stand then on that being a kind of, uh, you can't teach this, you're born with this, or uh, I actually think you, you are. I think it's both. I mean, I think you, I, I, there, are, there are people who work incredibly hard and make of some, you know, lesser natural talent, they make something huge out of it. And I, you see that. I don't think you can, if you're not able to act, you cannot teach yourself to do it. You can, but if you if you have that instinct, you can hone it and discover it. And it's a bit like meditation. People who are good at meditating, they get better and better at tuning into that state. They find it very. It's difficult at the start. I've done a little bit of it, and you kind of have that, and you think, oh yeah, I get better. It's like it's like any sort of um, pattern. You learn it. You, it like driving. Even it becomes subconscious after a while. But I think some seed of it has to be there already. I mean, it's such an unnatural thing to act. You know, it's such an unnatural in a way. It's such an art, I should say, artificial situation, but you're trying to access these very natural patterns within it. Do you actively support teams? Would you go to games? No. And this is, this is where I end up having, I, I love doing this. To, I always wind up fans because I don't really understand fandom. Like, you know, in school, when two guys would come in and start slagging each other off because one of them supported City and the other supported United, and you go, you lads were shy last night. And, and you think, well, hang on a second. Why do you take, on what basis do you walk with a spring in your step, seeing as you had absolutely nothing to do with anything that happened in that place? Not only that, they don't know you exist and they don't care about you. So, so that identification with teams, especially teams that aren't actually local, where you don't know the people who are playing, where you don't physically support and lend your voice to it. I've never really understood that. Hmm. I was a QPR supporter for a while, which maybe that explains it more. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're obviously going to start delving deeper into the world of professional boxing. Yes. What's the immediate plan there? So I am very excited because at the end of this week, I'm going to New York to um, watch Carl Frampton fight. And um, spend some time there with with his team and Don McRae, who wrote, as you all know, a friend of the show who wrote the the Griffith biography, because I want to be around real 
you know, a fight and, and what it's like before it and after it. And, and, to, and I know the difference, like in any sport, the difference between being there and watching on TV, just the physicality of it and the sound and the, the kind of immensity of it when you're really there. So that's, that's the next step. I'm delighted to say, Lenny, that we can talk to the man who's going to help get you inside that world. Joining us from Carl Frampton's training camp in upstate New York, very early in the morning, New York time, is Frampton's manager, Barry McGuigan. Oh, good morning, fantastic. Barry. Good morning, Owen. Good, mor- good morning, Lenny. We appreciate- good morning, Barry. Appreciate you chatting so early. Are you looking forward to showing Lenny here what a world title fight's all about next week? Yeah, very much so. This is absolutely massive. Um, this is a huge fight. It's um, it's a proper trade fight. It's it's a fighter's fight. And um, we are very excited about it. We've spent a long time getting ready for this. We've been waiting to fight this guy for a couple of years now. Um, we've always felt that this fight is, is a fight that Carl can win. It's going to be a very difficult fight, very challenging fight. This guy's a volume punches, throws, throws on average uh, 150 punches around. He's won three uh, titles at three different weight divisions. So this is a huge fight for us. Um, but again, we believe 100% that Carl can win this fight. And uh, we have spent uh, you know, a long time getting ready for it, and it's, uh, it's about to happen. So it's, uh, it's tremendous. And I can't wait uh, for Lenny to see the build-up to this fight and to see the the interest that's in it and, and uh, the whole characters involved in, 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 in the boxing world. It's a fascinating world. You have a bit of history in movies yourself, Barry. You were pretty heavily involved in Jim Sheridan's The Boxer back in the 90s. Yeah, Jim and I go back a long way. Daniel uh, was incredible. It was in, that Daniel Day-Lewis, yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis, of course, I say, I say that. Well, Daniel Day-Lewis was fantastic uh, in, in it. And, and um, we had Jerry McSorley with Brian Cox. Uh, we just had so many great actors. It was it was a, an amazing experience to be in there, um, you know, involved in, in such a, a big way. It was fantastic. Barry, it's Lenny here. Just, I'd love. I, I'm, I'm so excited and and feel so privileged that I'm going to get to spend some time with you and Carl in in a few days' time. But just wanted to ask you, um, how does it? How is it to be in the position that you're in now, where you're where you're actively working with this younger fighter? Is it, you know, compared to being the fighter, compared to being the guy who's going to step into the ring, a different kind of pressure, I presume. That, that's a fascinating question, and, and, and uh, one I'll do my best, Lenny. By the way, uh, lovely to talk to you. Can't wait to see you next week. So, uh, and obviously a huge fan of all of your achievements. So, congratulations. If I don't get a chance to say that, but um, it is an awkward position to be in because here's the thing: I sit ringside, and I honestly feel I'm about to step into the ring because I get that close to my fighters. I've only got about four of them that I work with, but. Being who I am and and the, where I've come from, I always think of it from the fighter first, because I was a fighter, and so I've got butterflies in my stomach. I feel nervous. I slip the punches when <laughs> the punches are being thrown at my opponent. It's very difficult to be um, the manager. I, for me, it's far more far more difficult to be the the manager than it is to be the fighter, because to an extent. As a fighter, I had control. I could control sure. things up to a certain extent. It, being a manager, I can't do anything about it. I just got to sit there and watch what happens. My son is a has become a fantastic trainer, and him and I work very well, closely together. He's the one who does all the work, Shane. 
And I sat, I sit on the outside and occasionally holler from time to time. In fact, he says sometimes I holler too much. But it's it's great to be involved in it. There is no better job than to be involved with, with some of these kids to realise their dreams, to, to realise their potentials. And to be involved with them is, is really fascinating. But it's a, the boxing world is a unique and, and phenomenal business and they're phenomenal characters and I'm sure you you already understand that Lenny you're working with Don McRae who's an exceptional one of the best writers in the world without Absolutely. a doubt and and, and um, uh, you know I've been a huge fan of him Dark Trade in black and white going back a long time he's just won so many awards just stop giving it out to him because he's such an amazing writer and and um, uh, when you when you when he gets a hold of something when he gets involved in something he always gives everything he's got and he just it completely immerses himself in it so uh, I can't wait to see you guys and how you're working with with, with uh, Emma Griffith who, whose story is just uh, an amazing story but it's 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 only boxing that you would get stories yeah. like that a, a gay man back in the sixties when it was when it was frowned upon to even mention homosexuality and, and the fact that he was a such a phenomenal fighter, 20 years in the business, won three world titles, or f- I think he won five world titles at different, you know, at different times, and just was a, a, an incredible fighter. And yet, in his real life, it was a hat maker, was a very feminine guy in uh, in many ways. But yet, as a fighter, he was. Just a really extraordinary fighter. All right, Barry, it's listen. A great story. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, great to talk to you as well this morning, Barry. And best of luck next Saturday night. Thank you very much indeed. All the best. Thanks, Barry. And I'll see you. I'll be there on Friday and Thursday, actually. I'll see you then. Fantastic. Murph, great, mate. you should have everything you need by now. I've got it on. Don't Let worry. Don't worry about me. This sporting life of Lenny Abramson. You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So the leaderboard as it stands is Gabby Logan riding high on 88 points, number one. David O'Doherty second on 85 points. And now into the firing line steps Lenny Abrahamson. So you thought thought the Oscars were cutthroat, Lenny. It says nothing (laughs) compared to (laughs) to the ruthlessness with which I run my scalpel over and through your sporting life. So the categories are as follows. Uh, your own sporting highlight, your current sporting ability, and your overall sports knowledge. So your overall sporting highlight is that, of course, extraordinary night in San Francisco when you <laughs> walked into a bar, about night. put oh, your money down on the pool table, <laughs> then held off all comers for 10 straight games, playing, to paraphrase golfer Bobby Jones on Jack Nicholas, a game with which those super cool West Coast 20-somethings were not familiar. Uh, they talk of you still in the bars and pubs of San Fran, the Irish fast Eddie Felson. You get 80 points, many of those for representing our country with such distinction on foreign shores. Uh, current sporting ability, time, of course, of course, marches on, and even a legend of the UCD 5 aside side AstroTurf community must give way to the harsh realities of life. We heard you left it all out in the field, even survived the potential career-ender that is the dreaded cruciate. Uh, but we must give you a mark. 50 seems the politest number between 1 and 50, so that is what we shall give you. Uh, the final category, uh, overall sports knowledge. Well, your knowledge of sports movies is second to none. Uh, which has to count for something and as excuses for losing touch with the Irish sports scene go heading to America to make movies that ensorcel the world and get you nominated for Oscars isn't bad I'm going to say 75 points with bonus points for hanging out with current world champ Carol Frampton so it's an overall score of 68 and a third percent 
And if you were a college student and I was a benign college professor, I know you the question you'd ask me. So I am willing to bump you up to 70%. So respectability was the ambition and respectability has been achieved. You have no idea how relieved I am. That's all I can say to you. I can hold my head up high. Any, any idea when the Emil Griffith movie might be... Well, I would hope it all going well that we would try and make it next summer. That would be oh, brilliant. You know, that it it all depends on getting the script in, in shape. I'm working with this brilliant writer called um, John Raymond in in the states, and he's coming with me on on Thursday. So it just <clears throat> you always make it when it's ready. But there's no shortage of people who want to make it with us. Okay, well that sounds absolutely brilliant, and it's been yeah, incredible having you. Well, yeah, incredible yeah. having you in studio it's here as well. Round of applause, guys, please. Oh. Lenny Abramson, Guys, Ray. I have to say a lot, a lot of love coming in. Not surprisingly, for the wonderful Lenny Abramson on Twitter and also via text five one double five one. But we gotta move this on because we have tracked down Murphy. We have tracked him down. Mm-hmm. Former Public Affairs International Kevin O'Callaghan. Kevin, thanks a million for taking the call this morning. Uh, I suppose the obvious question is, how the hell did you end up acting in Escape to Victory? A pleasure. Um, well, it was basically we were just uh, at a meeting with uh, Bobby Robson when I was at Ipswich, and he, he just come out with uh, there's a film being made in Hungary they wanted us to do uh, the football scenes originally uh, does anyone want to go yeah, it was like for four weeks you could take your partner or your wife with you uh, that's really how it happened we all sort of like well, there was about eight of us out there just went out there and that was it and then obviously we ended up getting acting parts because uh, the footballers that they had out there were you know, Dutch and they had broken English, so they wanted uh, obviously English-speaking um, footballers. You know, well, it sounded like it was a little vague at the start. I mean, we'd just go out yeah. there and be in scenes, and, and then you end up acting with Michael Caine and these kind of guys. Yeah, yeah, it was unbelievable because we didn't really, we didn't know what we was going to. We just knew it was a good film. We knew it was a one of the biggest budget films, a sport films I think ever made. Houston was the director, and uh, was it Fielding? I think he was a producer of Dallas and something like that. Right. He was the producer. Yeah, so we just, you know, we went out there and then, you know, obviously my first day, I bump into, like, two heroes, especially for me, Bobby Moore, I was born in East Ham, uh, West Ham, and, uh, yeah, sat next to Bobby Moore and Pele on the first day, so <laughs> that's amazing. Your character, Tony Lewis, was, I'm going to describe him, Kevin, as the unsung hero of the hour, as we've heard from the clip. Did you and Michael Caine get that arm break scene right in the first take? Yes, it was unbelievable because I was so nervous and Michael Caine was brilliant what an absolute lovely fella and uh, he just said to me just relax and we actually done it in one take yeah we did well while we're in the process here of separating fact from fiction then is it true that during filming in this movie Sylvester Stallone refused to speak with your Ipswich teammate Kevin Beatty after Beatty defeated Stallone in an arm wrestle on set no, that's that's rubbish. <laughs> it's, I, I, I read it. I read it in one of those articles. Things you won't believe yeah, know, yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. yeah so you I might know, have heard I don't that. Where that comes from? Right. Though. Okay. Yeah. Maybe maybe Beat lives in a bit of a fantasy world as well. So he might have said that. <laughs> uh, no, what was, I don't think that happened. Yeah. What was uh, uh, Slice Stallone like? Yeah, he was all right. He wasn't um, like a bit standoffish, or. Um, yeah, a little bit, I'd say. It was all right. He tried to talk to us. He just wasn't like one of the boys. You know, we, it, we, I don't know if you, obviously, you, you're like filming, you know what it's like. It's break for 10 minutes, the train comes past. It was, so we, you know, we'd, we had one of the uh, sheds, one of the camps was a, was a canteen. So we'd go in there and we'd be chatting and Michael Cain would sit with us. He would sort of just go back to his trailer. Now and again, he'd come in, but not, you know, we'd be sitting or mucking around playing football, you know. Yeah, he was he was all right, but he wasn't 
you know, it just wasn't. Uh, he was a big star at the time as well, so that was it. You're not. You're not just saying this because his character took your character's place in goal for the no, match. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I have got one claim to fame that I can tell you. Go on. Is that because I was out of the film by the time the uh, the football, you know, the uh, the main match, the last the match at the yeah. the end. Uh, you know, so the the, the famous goal where. Um, Bobby Moore takes it on his chest and crosses it to Pele. Yeah. Right. Well, that in in them days, the uh, that Houston said to us, this this uh, film because it had to be done in slow mo, cost something like I think it was like five thousand or ten thousand pounds a second or something like that. And uh, anyway, believe it or not, that was done in one take. That uh, that scene, and I I was the one that I pinged the ball out to Bobby Moore on his chest. So that's my claim to fame. Though <laughs> I wasn't in it. I did and we've done that in, and when he went I mean if you watch the film, you'll watch Pele do that over head kick and I mean we all looked we was all like aghast when he'd done that. It was just yeah. unbelievable. All right, Kevin O'Connor, listen, great to talk. We're actually out of time now, so I'll have to have to let you go. Sounds like Sliced Alone was a little standoffish, Murph. That's the mm. summary point from that. That's, well, that's, that's it from for. us. You can get in touch with us all week on Twitter, at Second Captains. Hope you enjoy the show. We'll be back next Sunday at 10am and our guest will be the absolutely wonderful Des Bishop. Marion Finucane is up next. Thanks to Caro O'Hare on sound, Mark Horgan and Simon Hick produced. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, 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 Thanks for listening. Enjoy your Sunday. <laughs> Second Captain, first Captain, whatever. <laughs> 